Welcome back, Serial Killers. I'm your host, Maddie Limert, and today is the first of a new style of show that I'm going to be working in periodically with our normal show episodes. Today, I'm presenting you with the case for revisiting one of my favorite childhood films that I just watched and watched and watched, and it led me to explore worlds of my own creation on lonely afternoons. It's the 1970s animated hybrid film from the genius mind of Chuck Jones called The Phantom Tollbooth. When talking about animation in the late 1960s and 1970s, there is one place that we have to start, and that's Disney. The company first saw a huge loss in its 1955 animated princess film, Sleeping Beauty, and as the company moved forward, they would look for any way that they could, quote unquote, further the art of animation while saving the bottom dollar. It sounds like the company hasn't lost that idea, now have they? So, after laying off 500 female ink and paint artists, yes, female is important because it was an all-female department, the company transitioned using a new technology called Xerox, yes, the same Xerox machine that you have in your office or at your home, to fill in the animator's pencil lines without needing the process of an inker. I think it should be noted that we don't have a record of how many female animators prior to 1970 there were. And it wouldn't be until Frozen in 2013 that we had a female-directed animated feature from one of the major studios. Disney had, as a company, uh, the actual mindset that women were not capable of working in the creative side of animating and felt ink and paint work was all they were capable of. Let's let that sink in for a moment. This was from an actual company telegram that was sent out to any women looking to apply to the company. Many other studios had already sold off their animation departments. This was due to the fact that most studios creating animated work were making shorts that were being shown in serial form before and after films, but as America and the film industry changed throughout the 1950s and 1960s, theaters got rid of the serial cartoons. But the 1960s and 70s would see a rise in companies creating animating works for TV mostly. Companies like Hanna-Barbera with shows like Scooby-Doo, The Flintstones, and The Jetsons. Da Piatte with Freelong started uh, from two former Warner Brothers animation employees with notable works like Pink Panther and several of the Dr. Zeus properties, most importantly, The Lorax as well as the world of Jay Ward, featuring characters like Rocky and Bullwinkle, Dudley Duray, and George of the Jungle. I also don't think I can move forward without mentioning the work that was released uh, as part of the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. Before 1968, any studio other than Disney that tried to release an animated feature quickly went under. But Yellow Submarine was the first animated film in over a decade that drew in the desire of children, teens, and adults. This movie truly opened the door to a life for animated features outside of Disney. And I couldn't talk about this movie without the Yellow Submarine. But I'm not here today to talk about the Yellow Submarine. I'm here to talk about another animation mastermind who, by the release of Phantom Tollbooth, had been working in animation since the 1920s and had already won an Academy Award, best known for his iconic work in Looney Tunes, Chuck Jones. He would eventually become known as the father of contemporary animation, but he was born Charles Martin Jones in 1921 in Spokane, Washington. In his autobiography, Chuck Amuck, Jones credits his artistic bent to circumstances surrounding his father, who was an unsuccessful businessman in California in the 1920s. 
He recounted that his father would start every new business venture by purchasing new stationery and new pencils with the company's name on them. And when the business failed, his father would quietly turn the huge stacks of useless stationery and pencils over to his children, requiring them to use them as quickly and as fast as possible. Armed with an endless supply of high-quality paper and pencils, the children grew constantly. Later, in one art school class, the professor gravely informed the students that they each had 100,000 bad drawings in them, that they must first get past before they could possibly draw anything good or worthwhile. Jones recounted years later that the pronouncement came as a great relief to him, as he was well past the 200,000th mark, having used up all of the stationery. And in 1933... Jones joins Leon Schlesinger Productions, who independently produced Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies for Warner Brothers. And by 1935, Jones was promoted to animator for a new project called Tex Avery. He would move on to be a major recruiter of animators for the studio, and when Schlesinger imposed a massive salary cut, Jones was the major force behind unionizing the animators. So during World War II, he would partner with a man known as Dr. Seuss, and created a project called Private Snafu, which was sent overseas to entertain the troops during World War II. Now, not to jump too far ahead, but because of this successful partnership, the two men would later partner together in 1966 to adapt several of Dr. Seuss's books, including the annually viewed How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Jones would continue his work well into the 1950s, creating some of the most incredibly iconic characters, such as Michigan J. Frog and Gossamer and Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, and even being one of the minds behind Bugs Bunny. He partnered with Michael Maltese to produce your favorite Roadrunner cartoons, as well as Duck Amuck, one Froggy Evening and What's Opera Doc, which is one of the most well-known and to date most viewed internationally Looney Tunes shorts. In 1953, during a short period where Warner closed their animation studios, Jones would work uncredited on Sleeping Beauty for Disney before having his section of the movie cut and him returning to Warner when they decided to reopen their animated department. Now, the 1960s would see Jones, along with Les Goldman, open up their own studio called Sib Tower 12 Productions and brought most of his staff over from Warner with him. In 1963, MGM would contract 12 Sib to produce their new cartoon about a wily cat and mouse called Tom and Jerry. Now, MGM would eventually absorb 12 Sibs, where it continued to produce for years, including making the film we're discussing today. He would see continued highlights throughout the rest of his career, including the return to Warner and working further on Looney Tunes, as well as founding the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity in 1999. His death shocked the world in 2002 due to heart failure, and we are forever grateful for the impact he made on the world. I also like to think that it's Chuck's influence and not Disney's that saw so much animation, particularly adult-centered animation in the 1970s, whether it's Fritz the Cat or the fantastically intricate animation of Lord of the Rings or The Last Unicorn. Now we'll be right back after this. Time, time is a gift, fleeting and swift, ticking and talking itself away, itself away, I'm saying better beware. Time is a gift, precious and rare. Take it and make of it all you can. Use all you can, there's not a moment to spare. 
Hi, I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and I'm the host of CPOV Autographs at CertainPOV.com. It is a bi-weekly interview series where I interview folks from all over the arts, from writers to comedians to magicians to musicians, even actors, historians, podcasters, pretty much anyone who's willing to chat with me for a little bit. If you like interesting conversations with even more interesting people, go to CertainPOV.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, music is life and life is good. Welcome back. So today we're looking at a film called The Phantom Tollbooth, and it's based on the novel of the same title by Norton Juster. It's a hybrid film that starts as a live action film where we meet a young boy named Milo living in San Francisco in the 1960s, though I don't really think the time or the place is particularly important. It does need to be said that like many books to screen adaptations of the time, Juster had no oversight and no input on the script or the story. Tollbooth would be the final release from the MGM animation division and was actually scheduled to be released in 1968, but because of internal conflict wouldn't be released until 1970. The reason Jones chose this project was his Academy Award-winning short, The Dot and the Line, was also written and adapted from a Norton Schuster story. And because he liked living in these worlds created by the author, Jones felt it was the natural progression. It was decided early in the process to make it a hybrid film and also make it a musical with music by Lee Pokris, Norman Martin, and lyrics by Norman Gimbel and Paul Vance. The score is a delicious combination of pop sounds from the mid to late 60s radio hits, as well as musical theater and musical film sounds from the time. But because of the conflict in producing the film, it was paired with six other films and premiered in Los Angeles as part of MGM's Children's Matinee Weekend. Then it did see a small release in other major cities, but financially, it was a flop but it was overall well-received by critics of the time, though most found it hard to find that line between being a children's film and a film that could be animated that would draw in adults and teen audiences. At its release, only 10 critics reviewed the film, but 100% of those critics gave it positive reviews with an average rating of over 7 out of 10. So it's currently sitting at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 76% fan score, give or take. It's had quite the home video life and was originally released throughout the 80s on VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc from MGM and United Artist Home Video. But the newest rights and DVD release live with Warner Archive Collections as part of Warner Home Video. And most importantly to me, I love that it's part of the Criterion Collection even though I still don't think this movie gets quite the love that it needs. So let's jump into the story. Milo doesn't feel particularly challenged or interested in school, but once he is out of school for the day, he's wrapped in boredom and doldrums. Until one day, a giant mysterious striped box lands in his living room. The box opens to be a whimsical toll booth with a tiny car inviting Milo in. And of course, as a boy of his age should, he travels into the gorgeously animated world behind the toll booth to begin his adventure. Now he finds himself in a place called the Kingdom of Wisdom, 
which since the banishment of the princesses of rhyme and the princesses of reason by the king of words and mathematics, it's an utter, utter disarray and disaster. And as we expect from the story of this nature, Milo's travel teach him valuable life lessons, and he finds friends such as a watchdog, complete with a watch for a heart named Tak, and the humbug, which you can take for who he is. Milo, of course, is able to unite the kingdoms and release the princesses just in time to get back home. I know I've oversimplified this plot, but I want to revisit some of these key points in today's episode. So... Why should you visit this film? Or if you were lucky enough to have seen it before, why should you revisit the film? As a young boy, I was much like Milo, overly distracted in school. So when I discovered this film and the novel subsequently, I was immediately drawn in. And as a point of reference, my other favorite property was the novel of the never ending story where Bastion, a sad chubby German kid was pulled into a world of wonder and excitement. But the world Milo gets pulled into is from the deepest and most richest part of Chuck Jones's mind. It drips with gorgeous detail and messy pencil lines and monsters and beings that are truly from your wildest dreams and nightmares. Accompanied by the wide-eyed glimmer specific to Chuck Jones's work and characters. The standout scene for this is when a conductor steps to a podium because his job is to conduct the sunrise and sunset of each day. And with breathless effortlessness to a gorgeous symphonic score, he directs the sunset. I mean, even in Disney films of the time, you do not find the depth of the world building that Jones was capable of. I mean, even in his novel, Juster gave very open but informed descriptions of the lands of the kingdom of wisdom. But Jones and company... Well, they went in deep and they filled it in and also did so much gorgeous work that was only capable of that pre-digital era of animation. I will state some of the most traumatizing and terrifying animated images that I've seen in my life that still reside in the deepest part of my psyche are from this film and were wonderful and frightening to revisit. Now, my second reason to revisit this is the cast. And while you might not recognize them by name, you'll recognize them by voice. And their performances were like a big, soft blanket when I rewatched this last week for the first time in 15 years. Thor Ravenscroft, who is a Disney legend, voices the Lethargians, the deep villains of the doldrums that just encourage Milo to stay and do nothing. I mean, Mel Blanc and Dawes Butler, uh, both Looney Tunes icons in their own right, voice about two-thirds of the other characters in this film, along with June Fourier, who brings a charming and lovable performance as several female characters. But with my absolute favorite being the faintly macabre, the not-so-wicked witch, and that is witch spelled W-H-I-C-H. Now, you know, these characters live in this world where they're representing things that exist within rhyme and reason, so mathematics and alphabet. You might go, oh, it's a teaching movie, but it's not. Well, it is. Now, my third and final reason is the story itself. And after almost two years of pandemic and civil unrest, we are tired of hearing about things that are oddly poignant, but I'm going to add another one to the list. Though this was made to be released during a children's matinee festival and is based on a YA fiction novel, 
its modern audience to me clearly is adults. And I think specifically millennials. We are so tired. We are so lost. And sometimes forget that it's not our job to solve every one of the world's issues. As Milo travels through the kingdom of wisdom, he faces many foes that I know I find myself dealing with on a daily or weekly basis. But it's not how to spell February or remember pi or what E equals MC squares. But it's truly at the end when he's dealing with the demons separating him from the princesses of rhyme and reason that we see what the demons and discord of the kingdom of wisdom really are. Their ignorance, malice, deceit, misinformation, hubris named each of these things so that Milo has to figure out how to fight each of them. These are such... Ugh, real world things manifested in leaders and rulers and witches and demons in the kingdom of wisdom that Milo must set right. I don't want to preach at you, but as he battles the demons of ignorance, he uses the gifts given to him by the two kingdoms. One is a bag of every word ever created. And the other is a pencil that I always wanted as a child because of the giant, beautiful round eraser that would solve any math equation ever thought of. And so these two things exist as separates and Milo realizes much like the Kings have to unite their kingdom. He needs to unite these two gifts together. And only when that happened, was he able to return the gorgeous, beautifully animated princesses of rhyme and reason over the kingdom of wisdom and unite the two Kings again. Now for a child or young adult, this is so much more of a what if scale for Milo. He stopped taking himself so seriously and, and separating himself and thinking that he was just so much more important than what's happening around him. And he realized that he can be silly and have friends who aren't going to be doldrums. But I have to say that at 36, I was sitting here breaking down the ideas of what I was able to take away from the film. It's whimsical and glorious, but also reminds us of important lessons and I think you all should give it a go. I mean, we're tired of thinking about how much ignorance is around us, but we don't actually think of how we can solve and fight that ignorance on a daily basis or whether it's even worth fighting. But I think it's in a beautiful package. <laughs> and though I don't want to give Jeff Bezos any more money, the only place to stream it, unfortunately, right now is to rent it on either Apple or Amazon Prime for $3.99 or it is available for DVD purchase from the Criterion Collection. As most properties do, in 2010, a live-action remake began work at Warner Brothers with Alex Z at the helm. But in 2016, the remake was moved to Columbia TriStar, and as of 2018, no real new information has come out on this project, other than it would now be a hybrid film, once again, directed by Carlos Saldana with Theodore Melfi overseeing the script. Now, a hybrid film to us means so much different than it did in the 1970s, but who knows? And honestly, now I'll leave you with this, that I'm not really sure that we need another version of this film because this one is pretty perfect to me. Video games are a unique medium. They can tell stories. Immerse us in strange, fantastic worlds. Blur the very boundaries of our reality. But at the end of the day, video games are fun. Whatever fun is to you. 
I'm Jeff Moonen. And I am Matt A.K. Stormageddon. And on Fun and Games, we talk about the history, trends, and community of video games. It's a celebration of all the games we play and all the fun we find within them. And there's so many more games out there. So we hope you'll share in that conversation with us. Fun and Games podcast with Matt and Jeff. Find us on certpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for this new style of show. We'll be back next week when I'm joined with Jared Ukaskis as we sit down and talk about one of my favorite witchy movies, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, with the iconic Angela Lansbury. I know! So a bunch of the next uh, properties we're talking about are all spooky, they're Halloween-y, they're fall, they're things that I absolutely love, and I think you're going to love them too. Remember, $2 a month on our Patreon lets, you know, lets me know that you love what we're doing over here. And again, I deeply apologize for the lack of content for several weeks, life has just been life, but we are back and we are producing fully again. We have some great new things coming. So don't forget to join us next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.